This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you and you have some work to do this hour. I want you to think about an activity, a farm activity that you think should be included in the 2032 Olympics in Brisbane. What would come to mind is something really interesting to watch, something difficult, challenging, but entertaining at the same time. What would that be? Text through 0448 922 604. And just to get you thinking about it, a Queensland agronomist has come up with a few ideas. So take a listen to these ones. I think probably one of the biggest ones is the, the gumboot, the gumboot dash, the the hair of the, the, the chain jangling and going, oh crap, the gates come open and having to run to make sure the cows don't get out of the paddock. <laughs> um, a few of the other ones were, we're probably trying to, something around synchronised swimming and trying to fish the foot valve out of, the, out of the dam when it's like below freezing is usually another common one that's come up. Now, I know you can do better than that. What ideas do you think? A farm activity that would be perfect to include in the Olympics. The text 0448 It is six past 12 here on the Country Hour. Shortly, you'll take a look at this massive aggregation of 50 properties in southwest Victoria, which has just hit the market, and the going price could be around $350 million. First, though, there is a new wheat variety in town. It's called Valiant, and it was launched in Perth this morning. It's been developed by Intergrain, which is funded by the WA government and the Grains Research and Development Corporation. Daniel Mullen is a senior wheat breeder at Intergrain. Daniel, why should farmers get excited about this new wheat variety? Well, I guess what Valiant um, as a wheat variety brings to, to growers is a, a new diversified package. So it's a wheat that has a combination of traits uh, along with the maturity that uh, when conceived back um, over eight years ago now, really wasn't on the market. So it packages in a slow uh, maturing wheat. So it's a, a wheat that's longer to mature than something that farmers would traditionally plant, say like a, a, a yitpi or a cutlass maturity that would traditionally be planted on around the 25th of April. And so it's extended that, that maturity length so you can sow much uh, more towards the middle of April and capitalise on those early sowing, sowing rains. And it's packaged in a number of other advantageous traits to help de-risk that and, and to give growers a bit more security when they go to, to sow that early in the season. What about its uh, disease resistance? What have you able, been able to package in with this new variety? Yeah, uh, like many varieties that we have out now, it's very strong on, it, on its stripe and stem rust, along with yellow spots. So yellow spots you know, at um, um, moderate, moderately resistance at a level is something that farmers have really come to to expect in today's wheat, and, and this again has that. And as you go around southern Australia, CCN tolerance, so a nematode tolerance, is also really important, and so we've pulled that into this variety as well. And what about where it will do well best? Does it sort of suit places all around Australia? 
or is it targeted specifically for Western Australian conditions? Well, surprisingly, um, so we we target and we test nationally. So this has been in trials from as, as north of uh, this year, it's up in Yuna and Tanundawa, uh, and it's trialled right the way around into uh, southern Queensland. And we find it has a really stable yield performance across across the nation, really, um, but particularly does well when uh, when sown in that early window. So that mid-April through to early May sowing window. And Daniel, how hard is it to sort of keep ahead of the game with this? Because it is such a, you know, a long game when you're talking about breeding a new variety like Valiant. As you said, it was eight years or so in the making. And by the time you get to this point, I suppose growers are telling you about some other characteristics or traits that they'd like to see in the next variety that you're working on. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and I guess it's job in breeding new varieties is to really spend a lot of time listening so we, we do that uh, you know listening always to growers to pick up on on trends in the way that they uh, their farm management's changing and so what they're looking for and we also we do that internationally as well so we, we can pick up on on what our end customers being millers and bakers in in other countries may be de- uh, demanding as well so that all comes in uh, to our decision making so that we can really be on top of what's in demand at the moment of release. And a lot of the time when a new variety comes onto the market, then one of the older varieties sort of starts to be left on the shelf. Uh, Is there any one that you think will fall into that category that might be left behind as a result of this new variety? Well, yeah. I mean, I think some of the great varieties do hang around for quite some time for for good reason. They, They work well for farmers that currently have them. This particular one, I think, yeah, it feels a bit of a void. It, yeah, there was no, as particularly in Western Australia, there was no variety that was well suited to a, you know, that sort of 15th to 25th of April sowing when those earlier rains came through. So, I think what it does is is creates new opportunity. Uh, it may not uh, necessarily displace uh, current varieties. And why the name Valiant? Who comes up with that, and and why? Well, I sort of came up with it because I spend a lot of time on farms and quite often there's a there's a valiant ute out there doing some of the hard yakka. And, you know, they're always reasonably slow, just like this variety, but robust and reliable and stack full of tools in the back. So it's just sort of really, that's what uh, sort of stimulated the, the idea around the naming. So that was your, your idea, your decision, is it? Yeah, it's always something that we throw around the table. It's Sometimes one of the hardest parts of uh, releasing a variety is coming up with a name, but this one sort of just really did just jump out at us. Yeah, and when's it going to be uh, available to growers? Well, we have um, some seed out to growers this year um, in in small quantities, but certainly coming out of our seed shed network, it'll be available for sowing next year. Well, congratulations. It must be such a special time when, you know, after such a long period of time that you finally have it out and about it's been named and it's ready to go yeah no and um it's it's always quite rewarding to to finally let it out of the stable yeah and uh give you know growers that additional option um hopefully de-risk some of their sowing um opportunities daniel good to talk to you thank you thanks linda Daniel Mullen, he's a senior wheat breeder at Intergrain and he's really happy because just a couple of hours ago the official launch of the new wheat variety called Valiant happened in Perth. 12 past 12 here on the Country Hour and you've got some great ideas. A farm activity that would be perfect at the Olympics 
when it happens in Brisbane in 2032. This from Steve in Jinjin. Tractor pull, fox shooting, fencing with ring lock shearing. Uh, this from Shane. Uh, cutting through state government red tape. Getting Telstra to connect your phone or the event that no one will win a medal dealing with native title. Wall in North Cunderdon has got an eye for bush chook drinking. Could have a sprint, a time trial, and then the marathon. And black duck, cocky gate opening, trough brooming, and windmill repairs. Not bad. Speed shears, sheepdog trials. There's some good ones in that lot. Can you do better? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Your farm activity that would be perfect at the Olympics. Thirteen past twelve. A massive corporate aggregation of fifty properties centred in southwest Victoria has hit the market with a price tag of about. million. There's expected to be strong local interest for the Coronella Group of Farms at a time when farmland is selling for record prices. Selling agent Danny Thomas says the Group of Farms cover 22,500 hectares. It's an amalgam of, you know, 50-odd properties that have been acquired over four or five years by Proterra Investment Partners out of the States. And so... Proterra sort of run a, um, a joint venture type model. They tend to partner up with a, a local operator, put a lot of the capital in, but, but they've got an alignment there with a local operator who's the boots on the ground. And so, you know, their local operators worked with local agents and communities and, and over time acquired, you know, those 50 properties which they've been running as a portfolio. And spread across quite a large area. Well, yeah, I suppose that's a relative term, the spread, but yes, yes. So north to south. You know, sort of from like Bolac, sort of up towards Navarre, Western Districts, Greens Creek and Wimmera, and then across into South Australia towards Narracourt. Is there a price tag? Uh, look, no, that's, that's the whole reason for running a sale process at the end of the day. Um, but we'd anticipate we'd get awfully close, I imagine, to 340, 350 million just based on, you know, where you're seeing a lot of those local transactions at the present time. Uh, this is a, a huge parcel of cropping land. I imagine it would have to be one of the biggest in, in terms of cropping land specifically to, to hit the market. Yeah, I must say in this geography, I, I can't think of anything bigger that's been presented. Uh, I'm sure you know one of your listeners will have a better memory than me as to other things that have been put to the market. But but no, this is this is a fairly special portfolio, and as a consequence of that, you know it's certainly going to get some institutional interest, a little bit like Lawson Grains that we've recently taken to market. Now, having said that, I think given the, the relative concentration of properties and the strength of the market in Western Victoria generally, that the locals are really going to take the corporates on head-to-head here and it would not surprise me at all that the, the locals would win. Mm, so does that mean that those 50, in, 50 different parcels will be offered individually? Well, no, not, not necessarily. So the reason we run an expression of interest process is for the market to tell us you know, what the highest and best outcome is. So... You know, we're going to take it to market, you know, prospectively as a portfolio or any combination of smaller properties. So that that could be anything from, you know, an in-one-line sale to an institution to, you know, splitting in half to a couple of instos. Uh, but there's a whole lot of people down there with very strong balance sheets now, given the run-up in values that um, you could handle, you know, fifty, a hundred million transactions in their own right. We'd also expect to see syndicates of nearby farmers, you know, trying to come together to compete, you know, on a like-for-like basis with those instos. 
So you would anticipate then that potentially some of these properties might go full circle, having started out as locally owned family farming type operations. Then we had this corporate aggregation. We might go back again to that local family farming model. Absolutely. And you're seeing a bit of that at the present time. So, you know, if you look at uh, the divestments of Westchester at Colcan and up in the Darling Downs, you know, large aggregations have been split up and sold into smaller groups. We certainly had a lot of that interest in Lawson Grains as well, but I'd anticipate that that's probably more likely to go in larger chunks than smaller, and we'll know that over the next few weeks. We've really got no idea, you know, in this market, which is sort of so dynamic and so strong, uh, you know, who's going to pull the right rein and, and end up with the assets. Why are we seeing these corporates, Coronella in this case, Lawson Grains you've mentioned on the market, several other big corporate properties on the market as well, why are we seeing them uh, selling up? They've all got different motivations. So Lawson Grains, it's been well documented, is just an end of fund life thing. So they're at the end of their 10 years and you know the way that fund works is to then take it back to the market and return the money to investors. The other institutions that you see selling, some are noted to you know, simply prove a concept and demonstrate to their investors that, yes, you know, um, what they've been telling them will be the total return over a period of time is true. So they sell a few assets to demonstrate that. They're certainly not selling all their assets. In other cases, it's investor behaviour 101 and, and very sensible for mine. You know, there has been a strong run-up in values. If a manager can, can crystallise the gains for investors now and return money to them at a good return then that makes a lot of sense. You know, in the words of Donald Rumsfeld, that's a known known. You know, you're crystallising a return that you know today. Who knows where it'll be in the future? And has that been the, the motivation of the corporate interest, the, the increase in land values? Have they got in to make money off that uh, more so than they have off actually farming the land that they've bought? Oh, they're, they're in it to make money full stop, Angus. So, you know, there are two limbs to that. There are operating returns and there are capital gains. And so I think most investors would be agnostic about where it comes from. At the end of the day, they, they simply want to return. Danny Thomas from real estate company Lord speaking to Angus Verley. 19 past 12, some more of your ideas about a great farm activity that would be perfect at the Olympics. This one, Country Volunteer Fire Fighting Competition. Thank you for that. Uh, Jim thinks uh, a wool bale roll and a small hay bale stack would be good. This from Stephen in Harvey, shearing. John in Mandra likes truck driving. I think I would take the gold. Um, must be pretty good then, John. And this, what about chemical mixing for the spray unit? Seems like the biggest job on the farms right now. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four to text through with your best farm activity for the Olympics. 20 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. News headlines at half past 12, then off to the Bureau to check weather conditions right around the state. Right now, though, tens of thousands of pigs will be slaughtered in the Dominican Republic over the coming months due to a major outbreak of African swine fever. It's the first time in 40 years the disease has been detected in the Western Hemisphere. Market analyst Simon Quilty says this outbreak poses a great threat to North America's pork industry. We've had two outbreaks in the Dominican Republic of African swine fever that started back on July 1st, and it was two farms. They were about 160 kilometres apart. By the time the authorities got there, 800 out of 842 
hogs had passed away or died from the disease. And at the other farm, all had been eradicated due to the disease. Since that outbreak of those two farms, we've now got 11 provinces across the Dominican Republic out of 32 that now have the disease. And overnight, we've heard that outbreaks have occurred on the border with Haiti, which is really the major concern in terms of where this disease could go. In Australia, we've seen a lot of biosecurity efforts to make sure that African swine fever doesn't end up on our doorstep. It looks as though America might be facing the same situation. Have they got the biosecurity measures to actually keep this disease out of the country? The answer to that was pre to this outbreak. No, I don't believe they did. Though, to the credit of the USDA, they had been monitoring farms across the Dominican Republic since 2019 due to classical swine fever, as it's known. So they have been monitoring it, but by the time they found these two outbreaks, it was obviously too late because now it's spread right across the country. But the similarities with Australia, you know, are remarkable. The distance between the Dominican Republic and Florida is about 1,100 kilometres. The distance between the tip of the York Peninsula and Papua New Guinea is about 200 kilometres. But the key difference is the size of our industries. The US industry is 78.5 million head. So it's 34 times larger than Australia's. We have a population of 2.3 million head of hogs in this country. So just to compare the two, the disease is on our doorstep in terms of both countries, but the US has far more to lose in some respects just due to the enormity of their own industry. So the Dominican Republic is estimating that this is going to cost their economy about $180 million. What would you estimate uh, African swine fever getting into Northern America would cost the American economy? Absolute billions of dollars, to be honest. So far, I mean, if you look at the breakup of the amount of pork produced in America... It's about 12.6 million tonnes per year. And beef, for what it's worth, is just almost a a fraction below that at 12.5 million. So in terms of the enormity of the industry, it is incredible how large it is. And of that, 27% of US production goes export around the world. Obviously, one of the challenges would be that if this, God forbid, get into America, Would we see countries like China, Japan, Korea, which are all three key countries that buy pork from the US, would suddenly close its borders off to America? And therefore, you would see pork that would have gone export being forced onto the US domestic market, which would then suddenly lower the overall value of protein, not just pork, but chicken and beef included. So as a, uh, in terms of the beef industry, I see this as really important to understand and follow because of the threat that it could have to North American protein. Obviously, we're talking in hypotheticals here, but would that mean that a country like Australia might end up having another advantage or would it just completely de- decimate the global supply chain of meat? I think it's the advantages, given that we import already 45% of our pork from overseas in Australia, 
it would definitely raise the value of global pork without doubt. So you would see pork prices rise significantly in Australia should the US be unable to export. I think that that's highly unlikely. I think the US will do everything within its power. They've increased the amount of surveillance at airports dramatically. So is Mexico. Brazil is on high alert. But this isn't the first time that the Dominican Republic has had African swine fever. Back in 1980 to 82, they wiped out completely their herd because of African swine fever back then. They culled every pig in the country. And today, there are around about 490 million head of hogs within the Dominican Republic. And the local senators in parliament only last Friday in the Dominican Republic called for a complete culling of the entire herd within the Dominican Republic. The government says that they are going to pay pig farmers market price for each animal that does need to be slaughtered. And they're also going to be confiscating pigs raised privately for personal consumption. What's the Caribbean's appetite for pork like and where will they get their pork from now? As I understand, it's very much part of their diet is pork. It's a big part of you know their everyday needs. So I think that the obvious thing is that they would have to import from elsewhere. And America, if it does not get the uh, disease itself, is the obvious go-to for pork into the Dominican Republic. But, you know, I think at this point in time, the real concern is Haiti, which we know overnight that there has been reports of outbreaks on the border where unexplained large number of losses of pigs are occurring in towns along that border. So I think we can say with confidence it's now in Haiti and that the population of pigs in Haiti is about 1.1 million head. So I think that the wild boar population within Haiti is the real concern because once it's in that, it will be very difficult to control. How is the Dominican Republic going to exercise this industrial-scale slaughter? Well, as I understand, they've brought the military in to do this, and the estimate is it will take close to five months in which they will euthanise the entire population. So they're the figures, five months, the entire military to be involved, the cost, as you said earlier, $180 million in which farmers to be compensated for these losses. Market analyst Simon Quilty talking to Jane McNaughton about a major outbreak of African swine fever in the Dominican Republic, an island in the West Indies between uh, North and South America. 28 past 12. Just on the sale of that massive corporate aggregation of 50 properties in southwest Victoria that's just hit the market... This in from David in Ravensthorpe. This land for sale in Victoria will never be sold to local farmers, a bit like Lawson Grains over here. The deal would already have been done between institutions at board level, just going through the motions. Thank you for that, David. That uh, deal on Lawson Grain is not too far away, maybe a, a week or two. You'll hear all about it, the buyer of Lawson Grain here on the Country Hour, when that happens. This headline's not far away. First, though, onto the Olympics. 
coming to Australia in 2032 and the agricultural industry has been putting in a bid to have some more rural sports in the games. A shearing's been suggested and as you heard on the Country Hour yesterday, a Kelpie stud in New South Wales is pushing to have sheepdog trials added. Well, now a Queensland agronomist has taken to social media to make a more light-hearted bid for the Games. Brendan McGee has filmed himself doing sports like the electric fence high jump, the cow pat discus and the I've run out of fuel 3,000 metre walk. He says the ideas have come directly from his childhood adventures on the farm. Growing up in the bush, you see like boredom and things like that. You, you really think, oh, yeah, well, if I went to the Olympics, what could I do? And you, you pretty much, I don't know, you find what you've got around the, the paddock and pretend that you're the next big shot putter or the next big weightlifter. And yeah, it might be hauling a rock, throwing a cow pat, trying to jump over a ditch that you probably couldn't make. But yeah, that's probably all it is. <laughs> well, you also put in there, so those were some of the, the sports that you have canvassed as ideas. So there's the rock picking shot put, there's the cow pat discus, and there's also the 3,000-metre run-out-of-fuel walk home. Is that a situation you've been in before? Uh, a couple of times. Growing, growing up, you usually take the motorbike out with a bit of bit less fuel than what you thought you should have. And, yeah, I'll, I'll admit, yeah, I've, I've had a couple of lonely walks home. <laughs> now, the other big event that was supposed to go ahead this week was the ECA in Brisbane, which you are a keen participant in, and it had to be cancelled this year. Did that have anything to do with you going and filming this video? Oh, probably a little bit. Like um, uh, work we do with um, on Mental Health Mondays at Elders, we just thought, well, if everyone goes into lockdown in southeast Queensland, well, it's our first real proper lockdown. If we want to, instead of everyone being in bad headspace, if they're having a giggle at me, well, I think that's better than the alternative. So, yeah, probably had a little bit to do with it. Like the have a shout out to me, uh, graduate uh, Georgia Rogers, who's always forefront and on the camera when we're doing our filming. She just missed out on the the echoes being cancelled, and she was um, in the running for the rural ambassador. So she's um, a bit down the dump. So just a shout out to George. Now it has uh, been getting around social media. What are some of the other sports that that have come up as an idea for you? I think probably one of the biggest ones is the the gumboot the gumboot dash the the hair of the, the the chain jangling and going, oh, crap, the gates come open and having to run to make sure the cows don't get out of the paddock. <laughs> um, a few of the other ones, we're, we're probably trying to, something around synchronised swimming and trying to fish the foot valve out of, the, out of the dam when it's like below freezing is usually another common one that's come up. There's also talk of um, the balance beam over the grid, but... Um, yeah, I think that might be a little bit too risky for someone like me. You also had mentioned to me before that you were looking at filming some more videos. You've had the creative juices flowing again. What's some, some more of your ideas that we can see coming up on your on your Twitter feed in the coming days? Probably the biggest one, which probably probably a bit risky to film, will be the, oh, I don't think she's faking the, with the calf vault over the fence. But, yeah, I, I'm... <laughs> I'm a little bit, a little bit risky, so I think we might have to increase the degree of difficulty on that. 
Bow Desert-based agronomist Brendan McGee. He's got a bit of time on his hands, hasn't he? Catching up with Eric Barker and just going through some of the farm activities that would be perfect at the next Olympics. You can have your say on the ABC Rural Facebook page or text through here. 0448922604. On the Facebook page, just having a look through, Heather's suggested the 100 metre dash in the bull paddock. A Vanessa, castration ring application race. 300 mixed lambs sorted included a timed event. Uh, that would be, I don't know if that'd be fun to watch or not. Sue's got swimming laps in the muddy dam. I'd like to see relay teams, Michelle, clean and jerk the stranded sheep out of the dam or creek. And Robert has tagged his mate saying, what about the I forgot where I bogged the ute in the dark walk? Plenty more on text if you would like to have your say. 0448 27 to 1. And Brianna Shepherd is here with an update from the newsroom. Hi, Brianna. Hello. Friends and family of a young man in his 20s who died suddenly from COVID-19 say the news has left them heartbroken. The 27-year-old from Sydney southwest collapsed inside the unit he shared with his wife yesterday. His cousin remembered him as a perfect man. A woman in her 80s has also died from COVID in the latest New South Wales outbreak. Homicide detectives are investigating the death of an 18-year-old woman in Perth this morning. WA police say she went to a medical centre in Spearwood yesterday afternoon with a serious injury. She went into surgery but later died. Officers are at the home of a 17-year-old male who's assisting police with their investigation. And the organisers of the Olympic Games in Tokyo say they have recorded 29 cases of coronavirus related to the event, including four among athletes. The news comes as the Japanese government announced a new policy to ensure enough hospital beds are available to deal with a spike in Delta variant cases if they are needed. More news coming up at one. Brianna, thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. News for you at one. Just before that news bulletin, off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market and Tracy Kilner going through those details. Also today, you are going to head off and take a look around Western Australia's largest but idle mango orchard, which could very soon be back up and running again. Couple more ideas for the farm Olympics. Hand wool bale pressing like the old Ajax wool press from Paul the Truckee. Thank you. Beer drinking and barbecue cooking comes in from Bill. And reversing a road train, gardening with a chainsaw, communicating with farmer-based sign language. And this in from Rosemary, the Narragin Agro-Olympics were held for several years in the 1980s with events like fencing, shearing, gumboot tossing, cooing and wool pressing. Thank you for that, Rosemary. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology to check weather conditions with Luke Huntington. Luke, how's it looking around the Southwest Land Division? Yeah, afternoon. Um, it's not looking too bad. Um, there's just some possible light showers along the south uh, coast today, but generally um, mostly sunny to partly cloud conditions over much of the southern half. Um, and, uh, well, there will be some more frost and fog around uh, early tomorrow morning. So that frost will be mainly about the gold fields into the central wheat belt and into the great southern area, uh, but it shouldn't be too widespread um, and it should uh, clear off in that early morning period. And uh, this is all 
all due to, due to a high-pressure ridge over the area, and that'll gradually move east over the coming days. So um, by tomorrow, uh, by Friday, sorry, we'll see all the showers uh, clear out offshore, and pretty much the whole southern ho- southern half of the state um, will be um, in sunny conditions. And it's not till Saturday where we see the next um, cold front move up. So um, there'll be a cold front moving up later in the day and just ahead of it there looks like there'll be a trough and a low um, crossing the uh, west coast ahead of it so there will be some showers developing during the morning period uh, from the west there and um, the most of the shower activity will occur uh, as that front does cross the coast uh, later in the day. At this stage, rainfall figures don't look too high, um, around about the 5 to 10 millimetres, um, but it should push uh, right throughout the southwest land division uh, into that Saturday and then probably linger into um, the Sunday period as well. And looking into northern and eastern parts, what can you see? Yep, over the north today, um, just some fresh and gusty easterly winds just due to that high-pressure ridge uh, developing to the south. Uh, That'll continue over the next coming days. Um, It's also generated um, a bit of fire weather warning over the West Kimberley there, so we'll probably have another warning out for that uh, tomorrow with those uh, easterly winds. Um, And that's pretty much similar conditions until we get to uh, Saturday with with that um, trough and cold front. So it looks like it does move over the the far west Pilbara and into the uh, western Gascoyne uh, later Saturday, so that'll um, generate some showers there but uh, generally less than five millimetres and um, continuing into the West Pilbara, uh, into the Gascoigne and the gold fields uh, on that Sunday period, but mainly light falls at this stage. And what's on the warning list this afternoon, Luke? Yep, so we've got those uh, strong winds off the north of the state, so off the Kimberley and Pilbara coast at the moment. Uh, that's for uh, tomorrow as well. And then we've got a fire weather warning for the West Kimberley coast uh, for today and most likely for tomorrow. And uh, we've got a moderate flood warning for the Blackwood River and a minor flood warning for the Swan River, but that'll ease uh, during this afternoon. Great, thank you for that, Luke. 22 to 1. Checking the rainfall figures now with Richard Hudson. Yeah, this won't take long. Uh, No rain at all in the northern and eastern forecast districts and then really just due around in most of the areas, particularly the southwest, uh, central west and the lower west. In the southwest, lots of locations had between one and two mils, um, but nothing above that, it looks like, and then nothing above... Uh, around, nothing at all in the central wheat belt, but in the southern coastal region, that's the only one. Hopeton North had five mils and a few other places like the Duke and Esperance had three and then nothing worth reading out in the Great Southern either. But uh, our Bunbury-based rural reporter Jess Hayes is out and about in the eastern wheat belt. I can't tell you exactly where. That's a secret. But she says... Uh, I can tell you, it's bloody wet out here. I've never seen anything like it. I've just texted her and said, where exactly are you? But I haven't heard back from her, so maybe she's bogged. And doing that long walk back that someone suggested should be one of the uh, competitions in the Olympics. But um, what I do know is some canola crops in Western Australia's great southern region are now showing early signs of sclerotinia, which is a bit of a worry because a lot of canola was sown this year by farmers wanting to capitalise on the high prices. Sclerotinia is a fungal disease which can cause significant yield loss and it thrives in years of high moisture and humidity as well as in cooler conditions. Ashlyn Ridgway is an agronomist with Nutrien and she says the problem seems to be pretty widespread already. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, it's very annoying, uh, to be honest. So the growers um, got the crops in early after that cyclone rain. Beautiful. They look wonderful. But obviously, big crops are creating their own conditions with their huge canopy they've got. And yeah, the sclero is just going crazy underneath. Just out in Coolin today. And I'm actually starting to see lesions on leaves out Coolin. So if you see it out there, it's definitely going to be in. Just within our um, agronomist network, it's um, well, down in Franklin, goes all the way up to Jarrow. Typically in towards the coast is where you have um, high enough pressure that you'd warrant spraying. And as you go out east, as, as I said, Coolin, not necessarily there for that spraying side of things yet. But no, it's across the board and a bit of a concern considering, well, it's only just August now. You definitely get the spores starting to spread a little bit through winter, but sort of September, as things might start warming up, the spores will just go rampant and that's where we'd see the big issues. But the fact we're already seeing high pressure now has us a little bit concerned for when it does start warming up. Pendulee-based agronomist Ashlyn Ridgeway chatting to Jess Hayes. Well, a lot of agronomists actually do get brought in to try to pick up those problems before they become big problems, the early detection of them. But um, some farmers in WA's Midwest have decided to take the same approach to themselves. They've organised some bonfire get-togethers. The six bees all started up back in 2017. We had some timber all pushed up that needed to be burnt from paddock preparations. Uh, I used Twitter as my main social media, put something up on there that we were having it and come up with the sort of the, the core things of what were involved and it was the six bees of blokes, barbecue, bonfire, beers, bonding and, and some bullshit. To stand there and hear my mates laughing, telling the same cricket stories, embellishing the same footy lies, that the, the real sensory communication of hearing how people are going and yeah to hear that laughter is just brilliant. I first saw Six Bs on, on Twitter, um, Brad Milstead and a couple of the other guys when they first started up in 2017 and I really like the concept and I really like the motto. Even though they're neighbours, I haven't seen those guys for probably two or three years. So, And there was other guys from 50 k's away that I might have seen once in 10 years. So it definitely drew people from everywhere and, and people who you didn't expect to be there were there and they felt comfortable coming and they were, they were there to be able to catch up with mates. We all turn around and we soil test our paddocks to find out what's there. We can't do that with ourselves, unfortunately, but we're the first ones to do that professionally. We'll go and find out what's wrong and we put the additives in there to get everything back into balance. We need to, yeah, remove that stigma that there's nothing wrong with getting help. It's, as the saying goes, it's okay to not be okay, but what's not okay is to do nothing about it. Wathroot farmer Brad Millsteed. You also heard from Mullawa farmer Rod Messina. That story was in the ABC's 7.30 report and if you missed it because you were watching the Olympics, there is a link on the ABC Rural Facebook page and it is worth a look. 16 to 1, a couple of more ideas coming through for a farm activity to be part of the Olympics. Wheat bag lumping and stacking as per 1940, suggests Beeler. 
Fred from Boxwood Hill likes driving the header between strainer posts for an Olympic game. Then there's standing on one leg on the roof of the ute, trying to get a signal on the mobile phone. Thank you, Stephen. Alex from Needle Up likes driving around drinking coffee. Driving a tractor without a GPS, perhaps. Uh, Steve from Katanning would like to see sheep duffing as an Olympic sport. And then this one from Murray in South Albini, having various mechanical issues to solve with the only a hammer, shifter, cable ties, tech screws and celastic. 99% of farmers would be eligible for this particular competition. If you've got a better idea, text it through 0448 the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. The state's largest but idle mango orchard could soon be up and running again. The 120,000 tree Galango Orchard is on the outskirts of Kununurra in the Kimberley. New manager Steve Angel hopes to resurrect the farm over the next few years so it can get back to producing almost a million trays a year. It's one of the older mango orchards that's been established here and has a chequered history. A private investment scheme, agriculture, some years ago the rewards group made it and then people invested in it. They got it up and running and then it went into receivership for four or five years and then it just sat here idle Mm. and then a consortium from Perth brought it and they got it at a very good price and then I'm leasing it and buying it off them. Yeah, look, it has unlimited potential. On the size of scale, I think it's in the top five in Australia, and we're just trying to resurrect it and go forward. You've driven me around the property this morning, Steve, and we've been chatting over the last few months, and I've been sort of watching this place come back to life. Tell me a bit about all the work you've had to put into this place over the last few months to get it to where it is today. Yeah, when we started, we had to redesign a whole fertiliser program, we had to design a watering program and the farm hasn't had any consistency or love over the years and we have a vision of of going forward and being able to produce good consistent fruit over a period of three or four years. We're not there yet but we will be in two or three years time and we're changing a lot of things, we're trying to incorporate a bit of science and a bit of old ways, we're trying to get microbial activity in the soils and we're using flies to pollinate, we're breeding flies to pollinate. I made a few mistakes early, but you can actually physically see the results um, on the trees that had good fly breeding program. Going forward, it's very encouraging because a fly will work whether it's hot or cold. He'll work and he's hungry all the time, whereas a bee is a very selective worker. How would you describe the start to the season this year after last year, which was a pretty dismal year in the valley? Yeah, look, it was the hardest year I think I've ever put in, and it was my first year here. You started to second-guess yourself, but this year we had such a good wet season. It was a constant wet season. We had cloud cover, and the trees really responded, and that has helped produce the flowering we're having now. Yeah, look, it gives you hope. You think, I'm doing the right thing. Now, in the past, this orchard, um, I guess, has got a reputation for not ever quite living up to its potential. I mean, what is the potential of this place? If you put all, you know, all the work you've been putting in, what do you think this uh, place could produce in number of trays? Well, we're hoping, this year we're hoping for two to 300,000 trays. 
next year three to four hundred thousand trays and look if the Israelis can get 70 to 75 kilos per tree of fruit we're not as good as them but you know we could get six or seven hundred thousand trays consistently of fruit here so it has potential and we have end producers like Weiss and a couple of others who are looking for a puree a pulp what we're looking at is doing all that here in the future not now because we had such a bad year we don't have the cash to do it but that's the plan in the future you don't grow perfect fruit for Woolworths and export all the time you do have that second and third grade fruit instead of choking the market with it mm-hmm. we try and value add it here and turn it into dollars the valley's had a really tough time over the sort of last sort of eight to ten years with mango production i mean last year was one of the lowest on on record with about 20 30,000 trays coming out of the valley i mean this place could turn around the mango industry in the valley couldn't it yeah it can we have quite a few of the chain stores that are very interested in what we're doing because they want a consistent supply of fruit to put through all their stores. And it's a lot of wait and see. Mm. No one is committing. The only people that are committing are the exporters, and we're looking to export to Singapore, Korea, and possibly the USA. There hasn't been mangoes exported internationally from the, the Valley for a long time, is my understanding. No, but there's a lot of people making a lot easier with the export centre put in up in Darwin, mm-hmm. um, the treatment plants. And I have to admit, the government, Department of Ag and everyone else, all of a sudden realises that, yeah, we have to go forward. So they're very cooperative and very helpful. You are currently leasing and you are looking to buy from the Gladi family that own, own the property currently. Um, it must be an extraordinary opportunity to be able to, to buy a, an orchard like this. I mean, a, a place like this doesn't come up on the market very often, does it? Look, it doesn't, and in something of this size and this calibre, everyone over the past years has looked at foreign investment, and that's not on the on the cards anymore. Yeah, and it's an extraordinary opportunity, and I just happen to be the right the right place at the right time with the right desire, and it, it's exciting. Steve Angel from Swag Mangoes speaking with Courtney Fowler about reviving the Galango Orchard in Kununurra, which is the state's largest mango plantation. Uh, Steve's hoping to start picking in the last week in September, employing about 100 or more pickers, and it is going to be interesting to see if they can find enough workers. 10 to 1. Northern Territory farms are also struggling to find workers. Some Territory mango farms have already started picking. Yesterday, the NT Farmers Association announced two flights have been booked to bring seasonal workers to Darwin next month. CEO Paul Burke welcomes the news, but he's concerned it's too little too late. We have a confirmed date of uh, the 1st of September to bring people in from Vanuatu and that's approximately 162 workers so that is really pleasing. Um, we have a secondary date of the 19th of September um, to bring people in for Samoa. Um, it's a little bit late in the season when you think they arrive sort of that mid to late September to 14 days quarantine. It doesn't get them on farm until the second week of October and, and that's certainly later than, than we had uh, conveyed to government and and far later than what industry's expectations are. So how come these flights aren't arriving earlier? So there's been a lot of competition within the Howard Springs facility. I guess 
from um, an industry perspective, we, we flagged this um, at the end of last season and have been working with government to make this a reality. Um, it's been a really complicated process um, and certainly we've had good support from Department of Industry, Tourism and Trade. Um, they've been very supportive, but we haven't been able to make it a reality, which I guess is really frustrating from a grower's perspective, um, who are relying heavily on uh, the ability to be able to get workforce in um, from overseas to be able to get what looks like a record crop off. I guess they'll be here in time for the Catherine Mango harvest. Yeah, I guess we do utilise staff in the Darwin region first and then they move on to Catherine, Mataranka, across to Kalamara and then Queensland. It will put a lot of pressure on the top-end harvest as well. And for those people that aren't using seasonal workers, it'll have the added uh, stress of everyone competing for what available workforce is here. There is still a shortage of workers right across all sectors of agriculture at the moment. We're certainly hearing um, from our colleagues in the cattle industry that there's certain areas that, that are quite short of staff as well. And it, there is no golden fix to this. We just need to be able to bring people in. And I think longer term an ag-specific visa will be very helpful in this space. Uh, but for the short term, it's, a, it's around seasonal workers and the ability to be able to move people across state borders without the insecurity that currently exists. Paul Burke is the CEO of the Northern Territory Farmers Association, speaking with Matt Brand. And it costs between $3,500 and $4,000 for each worker to be flown into Australia and do 14 days of quarantine. So the mango industry is forking out around $1.5 million to make this happen. Paul has texted in from a wet Jeremungup. He says, I'm sick and tired of the bickering going on about obtaining qualified labour for harvest. Someone needs to bash their heads together. As for me, vaccinations first, then on-farm quarantine is the cheapest and most logical solution. How many times do we have to say it? What happened to an agricultural workers visa? Our pollies could not solve any issue, especially for agriculture. Yes, get some maturity in dealing with the issue. Otherwise, we may have weather-damaged grain. Six minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. COVID vaccination passport, is it the next step to freedom? We find out how it will work and just how far it will take you. Checks in the mail, former Australia Post boss Christine Holgate to receive a $1 million payout and the summer of love. Music festivals are back on in the UK, but when will it be safe to go back in the mosh pit in Australia? Those stories are more from across the country and around the globe on The World Today. Whip cracking is not an easy sport, but recently a nine-year-old wowed the crowds at the Hearts Range races about 200 kilometres east of Alice Springs. Hugo Ricard-Bell caught up with this young gun and discovered his whip cracking journey started a long, long way from... From Alice Springs. Hello, um, I am Ossian Lewis. I come from Sweden, but I currently live in Alice Springs and I just did the whip cracking competition. You come from Sweden and you're in Alice Springs. What brought you all the way from Sweden? Uh, my grandma is Australian and he, she was living here uh, in Alice Springs and so we moved here to see her and this, this has become our, our home. Ossian, how long have you been in Alice Springs? 
currently six years this year. Uh, yeah, I was born in Sweden. I speak fluent Swedish, yeah. Can you uh, give us a bit of Swedish, mate? Tell us about the whip cracking in Swedish. Now, can you please tell me what you just said? I said um, I really like the whip cracking competition and I really, really hope I win. Um, but yeah. Now, let's get on to the whip cracking. Mate, where did you learn how to crack a whip like that? Uh, I'm not quite sure. Um, back in Sweden, my dad had a stock whip, um, but yeah, he kind of taught me, and then we went here, bought another one, and yeah, I did practice every day, and then my brother's puppy, he got a new puppy from Wurman Station, um, he uh, chewed my whip, so I couldn't practice quite a bit. Well, you've obviously got a new whip. Do you want to talk me through um, what, what that one's made out of and um, where you got it? Yeah, it's a kangaroo whip um, with a, a wooden handle. Um, it's not that cheap. It was about 95 bucks. Yeah. And how long have you had that whip? Uh, it's not actually mine. It's um, my brother's, so, yeah. Oh, so you got to look after that one. Yeah. If I break it, I get in big trouble. Hey, so Austin, can you please give me uh, give me some advice? I want to go out and learn how to crack a whip. What's your bit of advice you could give us? Don't hit anyone. Um, they get a bit cross. I've done that in the past, and it's not very fun to be on the receiving end. And um, try not to hit yourself, which you will hit yourself, but it just comes with the practice, but try not to. Some good advice there from Austin Lewis, the whip-cracking nine-year-old from Sweden. It's three minutes to one and off to Katanning now. Tracy Kilner's been keeping an eye on the sheep market today. Tracy, how did it go? Hi, Belinda. Numbers were up over 2,000 head. We had a total yarding of 8,314 sheep and lambs. Old season lambs eased with demand while a few pens of lightweight new season lambs sold to $149 a head. Another quality run of heavy use offered reached a new peak selling at $280 while store use eased with processors not active and most lines going to restock of fattener buyers. The best heavy lambs sold to $203 with not all regular processor buyers in attendance. Lightweight lambs under 16 kilos carcass weight sold from $81 to $135. The heavier under 18 kilo carcass weight lambs made from $110 to $140. Light trade weight lambs sold from 130 to 171. The heavier tradies sold from 140 to 180. Heavyweight lambs made $196. Extra heavyweights returned $203 a head. The young merino ewes sold for $80 to $200 depending on weight and quality. Light store ewes sold from $80 to $135 with a fleece, while heavier stores sold to $158 with a full fleece. The medium weight prime ewes weighing under 30 kilos carcass weight sold for $164 to $250. A good yarding of heavyweight ewes over 30 kilo carcass weight sold from $227 to $280 a head. Heavy weathers made $250. Young hoggett weathers returned $118 to $150 for lightweights. And heavier lines to processors sold from $165 to $216 a head. Mature rams sold from $50 to $187 depending on weights. While ram lambs 
eased, making from $107 to $163 for the heavyweights. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Tracy. And a few more farm activities for the Olympics. How about how far you can drive through the paddock before you get bogged competition? It's damn wet, says Jamie. And this from Rowan, a good sport would be ploughing. Me and my wife still love ploughing. Thank you, Rowan. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.